It's Christmas time. Are you excited? Trees up, garlands hung, lights lit. I will tell you that uh, every year, sometimes more, sometimes less, but this year it seemed particularly heavy, I occasionally run into a Grinch or a Scrooge. You guys know what I'm talking about? I will occasionally, sometimes I, I try not to be the Grinch or Scrooge, all right? But I occasionally run into a Grinch or a Scrooge. And sometimes uh, it's not just people who don't know the Lord and don't like the busyness of the season, but it's good Christian people trying to be as obedient as they know how to be to Scripture. But they just kind of, well, let me just give you an example. I got an email this week from a, a former member no, who no longer attends here who said, I'm glad that you're going to be in your new building by Christmas. I hope you're not going to put a pagan Christmas tree in there. We're not. We're going to put a Christian Christmas tree in there. Uh, uh, every year I get emails saying that Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas. That uh, there are a lot of reasons not to. Uh, the recurring ones are Christmas isn't found in the Bible. There's no Christmas celebration dictated in the New Testament. Uh, that uh, uh, Christmas is um, based on pagan and idolic idolatry activities. Uh, even that Jesus wasn't born on December the 25th. Now, this circles around, and I don't often address it, but I wanted to take a few minutes this morning as we kick off this Advent season. The title of this message is that we need to celebrate the hope that we have in Christ. And the first point is all about celebration. The first point is all about celebration. And so the first question is, should we as Christians celebrate Christmas. Now, we don't want to have a practice that we like and then go to the Bible to proof text it. Matter of fact, there are many things that we have enjoyed that as we read and study Scripture, we learn that we should not participate in. And as those who want to live our lives and live our lives pleasing to God and to God alone, we want to follow the dictates and the patterns and the principles of Scripture. And so I want us to look and wonder or ask the question and answer the question, are the people of God a celebrating kind of people? Are we supposed to be a rejoicing, celebrating kind of people? And to take us to there, first of all, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. And I'm going to read a passage of Scripture from Leviticus chapter 23. While you're turning there, the background from Leviticus, this is in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible. Uh, this is part of the Talmud, or the Torah. And here we have a description of the feasts of the Lord. We'll just kind of look at these quickly. There's one I want to camp out on for just a moment. He begins with the Sabbath, the day of rest that the Lord established. Six days shall you do all your work, and the seventh is the day of rest. By the way, that's a pattern that is established in, by God and established for His people. Uh, we come to the Passover. You guys are familiar with the Passover celebration where the angel passed over the houses with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and spared the firstborn as God was leading the children of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. There's the Feast of the First Fruits, where God's activity, where they celebrated God's activity bringing the people into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, so that they wouldn't forget that all their provision comes from God. There's this next feast they call the Feast of Weeks. 
celebrating the word of God to Moses and through Moses to the people. It is All of these are still celebrated by the Jewish people or many of the Jewish people. It is a pilgrimage feast. There's the Feast of Trumpets. You know better probably. It's Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year because it marks the beginning of the Jewish calendar. During this celebration, no kind of work is done, but burnt offerings as a sin offering were to be brought before the Lord. And then probably the most, not probably, the most significant Jewish celebration is Yom Kippur. It is the Day of Atonement, the most solemn holy day of all the Israelite feasts and festivals occurring once a year on the 10th day of Tishri, the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, so in the fall. And then in Leviticus chapter 23, we come to my favorite Jewish national feast. It's called the Feast of Booths. Do you like the camp? I'll pause right there because the Feast of Booths is celebrating the children of Israel and God's provision for them as they travel through the wilderness. So let's look at what the scripture has to say about this particular feast. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seven month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. Now what they would do, is, and we'll pause right there, what they would do is they would fashion together tents. They would fashion together Booths, and this was kind of a, a, a really elaborate thing that they would do. Sabbath, no rest. I mean, no work. Worship, holy convocation, prayer. And then the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they lived. They moved out of their house and they went camping. They, they lived in these booths, commemorating how God had carried them across the wilderness. We'll come to more details about that in a few minutes. The question that we're answering, though, is are, should we be a celebrating people and should we celebrate Christmas? I, I think it's very clear that God designed for his people to be a celebrating people throughout Scripture. There are nine Jewish holidays annual on the, on the annual calendar. Seven of those were mandated by God. God said, do this, do that. Do this, do that. Here's this celebration. Here's how you conduct this celebration. Here's what you do here. Here's what you do there. But what about man-made or not specifically from the word of the Lord celebrations? Is it okay for us to celebrate things that are not explicitly commanded by God through a prophet in Scripture? I would say yes, it is. And there's biblical evidence for that. As a matter of fact, do you guys remember the story of Esther in the Old Testament? How many times is the name of God mentioned in the book of Esther? Not any. Not any. As a matter of fact, it is a historical story. There is Mordecai, who is known to the king Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Do you guys remember the setting of the book of Esther? The Jews have been taken into Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians have been defeated by the Persians. There's King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus is 
is, is the way his name is, is translated in the ESV. <laughs> so the Jews are, are, are kind of resident aliens in the land. There is a man in the kingdom named Haman who Mordecai, the hero of our story, a Jewish leader who had the ear of the king and who at one time saved the king's life from an assassination attempt or at least a threat of one. Mordecai would not bow to Haman. Haman, of course, the person who hated Mordecai and hated the Jewish people, the resident aliens. And so he devised a plan wherewith he would convince the king to allow the citizens to battle the Jews, to take their swords, to go against them, to slay them, to take their possessions, to take their lands, and to take their houses. And he made it a decree. The thing about the law of the Medes and the Persians is once a decree is made, it stands. But God changed Ahasuerus' heart through Mordecai and the story of how Mordecai had saved him. He foiled Haman's plans. You will remember that Esther was Mordecai's niece, and he's the one who told her, Listen, God put you in this place. He opened this door. He's in control for such a time as this. You're here for such a time as this. And through her intervention, uh, again, they could not undo the decree, but the, he added the decree that said the Jews can defend themselves, that they can take up arms, that they can do battle against. Now, most of the populace didn't want to do it, and since they knew the king didn't want to do it, then the second degree came. But there were 75,000 <laughs> family members and others who were followers of Haman who did, who were killed by the Jews, defending themselves. And the Jews remained safe. And so the Jews were delivered. Now, what happens in Esther chapter 9, if you'll turn, and we want to read just a, a, a little bit longer passage because he is establishing a celebration in Esther chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai, the hero of our story, recorded these things. And he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the providences of King Ahasuerus, and both near and far, obliging them, important word, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow to gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, he's the bad guy, the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr. That's a lot, by the way. That's a dice, a, a, a lot, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writings, that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return upon his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. By the way, Haman had built gallows to hang Mordecai on. God turned this around, and the very gallows he had built for Mordecai, he was hanged upon. Therefore, they call these days Purim. By the way, that's poor, P-U-R. That's the dice, the lot that was cast. M is just plural. We would say poors. They say Purim. After the term poor, therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and because of what they had faced in this matter and of all that had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them without fail that they would keep these two days according to what was written and the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered 
and kept through every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days uh, cease among their descendants. The Feast of Purim, the Feast of Lot, still celebrated today. By the way, just in case you're wondering, there's no mention of God mandating this ceremony. There's no mention of a prophet that God said, here's something that I want you to establish. These are God's people who were delivered, and they recognized God's hand in their deliverance. And they established a holiday, a feast day, a time of celebration to commemorate an act of God on their behalf. And it, it, its very presence in Scripture, I think, is, is a, a, uh, not a mandating, but in approval, a sanctioning of the celebration of God's people for acts that God has done. There's a, another one, by the way, that is on the Jewish calendar that we have no direct prophecy or no direct vocal mandate from God, and it is that what you know, what we are most familiar with, by calling it Hanukkah. Are you guys familiar with that? You know, I can get lost here. I, I was only half kidding when I told Stephen this is going to be an hour and a half sermon, but it won't be. Very simple. Are believers supposed to be a celebrating kind of people? And we see the pattern throughout Scripture. God moves. His people acknowledge it, and we worship in celebration. Between the Old Testament... And the New Testament, we have 400 years of silence, if you will, as far as God speaking through prophets. There was an event that took place with a, a guy, we, we will call him a bad guy, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was a Roman who went, or Greek, Macedonian actually, who went down to, took his army with him down to Egypt. He was a threat actually to Rome. The Ptolemies uh, threatened to have a, an attack from the north. He was going to have to fight battles on two fronts. He ended up saying, I can't face two armies, and so I'm going to go back home. He begins to go back home. If you're going home to Greece from Egypt, Jerusalem's on the way. And he wanted a place for himself. He wanted a kingdom that, that was his. And so rather than having a battle there, he decided to buy them, if you will, to appease them. And he built great buildings, he built great gyms, he built great uh, places. But he told them, you can't worship anymore. You can't worship your God anymore, you have to worship me. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, I am the representative of God upon earth. And many of the Jews kind of said, well, okay, the nominal Jews, the ones who are only kind of in the borderline of worship, but there were many devout who stood against them. Jacob Maccabees is one who stood against him. If those of you who are historians, you may be familiar with this. If you read the Apocrypha, you might be familiar with this, a collection of books kind of dated between the Old and the New Testaments. And they stood up to him, and they said, no, we will worship. He wanted to stop all Jewish worship in the temple. And so he did what the Old Testament called the abomination of desolation. What is the worst unclean animal you can have as a Jew? Anybody know what it is? A pig. A pig. He took a pig into the temple. He took a pig into the holy place where the altar is. And he slew, slayed, killed. That's twice today we got to say kill. He killed a pig upon the altar and he allowed the blood to pour down over the altar, defiling it, making the altar itself unclean. Bad days for the worship of God. Bad days for the Jewish people in Israel and the countryside. Well, there was a family, the Maccabean family, 
who decided we're not going to stand for this. And they created a revolt. They reclaimed the temple. They reclaimed Jerusalem. When they went into the, the, here's the story. By the way, Hanukkah is also known as the Festival of Lights. It's also the Feast of Dedication. And so when they went back into the, to the temple, according to legend that has been written, they found that one vial of undefiled oil, oil that was to be burned in the lamps. And they took that vial of oil and they poured it into the menorah, the lampstand by which they would worship God. And it only had enough to burn for one day, but by some sort of miracle or God's provision, it burned for eight days. And they were able to cleanse and to reestablish, at least at some level, the worship of Yahweh, of God. And the Jews call this Hanukkah. They call this the Festival of the Lights. They call it the Feast of Dedication. Why does that matter to us? Here's another festival, not specifically vocally mandated by God, but sanctioned. How do we know that God sanctioned that celebration? Because in John chapter 10, you guys will remember in John 10... About Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Do you remember what happened back before that? Jesus was at the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. He attended, he participated. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he was walking among the people in Solomon's portico. He was right there in the heart of it, in the midst of the crowd. And there he began to speak. He gathered a crowd to himself. And he made some of the strongest claims about he and the Father. They said, if you're the Christ, tell us. Just let us know. And he makes it abundantly clear. I and the Father are one. And, and his presence gives credence to the celebration, not mandated, but permitted and endorsed, sanctioned, and received as worship to God. So all of that to say, hey, folks, if anybody has a reason to celebrate, you and I have a reason to celebrate. Amen? What are we celebrating at Christmas? We're celebrating God's promise fulfilled in Christ. A virgin shall give birth to a son. God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus, Yahweh, saves He's coming to save his people. He is in this first advent. We have great reason to celebrate. So just quickly, how should we celebrate? I mean, how should we celebrate? I think, again, we can go back to a model in the Old Testament and find out some things that they did that you don't have to do, but it's certainly okay for you to do. The second point on your outline, by the way, the first one is we ought to recognize our obligation to celebrate the Incarnation. We ought to recognize... Our obligation to celebrate the birth of Christ. And I think we can all amen. Let's amen that and move ahead, and that will shorten this sermon by 30 minutes, okay? Amen? amen. Celebrate our obligation to, to, to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, or embrace our obligation to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then the question becomes, well, how do we do that? Should it all be solemn assemblies? Are we permitted to have a tree? I mean, after all, Jeremiah chapter 10 says something about not going out in the woods and cutting down a tree and bringing it into your house and decorating it. Doesn't it say that? Some of you may not be familiar with it. It does say that, but you need to put that in the context of idolatry. He's talking about a pagan practice by a pagan people in which they would bring in the tree and they would worship it and offer gifts of gold to it and offer gifts of silver to it in order that 
the tree or might, might recognize or the God that it represents might, might bless them in their harvest in the coming year, might bless them in their income in the coming year. We're not talking about idolatry. If you're going to worship a tree, you shouldn't have one. Amen? But what about how the children of Israel worship? The second point on the outline, if we go ahead and put it on the screen, is that we need to prepare for this celebration with great joy. We need to go all out. We need to go all out. We need to be all in on celebrating God's activity. Why do I say that? Because look in Leviticus chapter 23. As a matter of fact, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. If you still have your Bibles open or close to it, or we can get the words up on the screen, where he describes the Feast of the Booths. Uh, we're picking up here at verse 39. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the You've gathered in the produce of the land. This is a fall celebration. You shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day, solemn rest. On the eighth day, solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. For seven days in the year, it is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering is at least establishes a pattern for how we can be planning on. How should you celebrate this Christmas? Focusing upon being glad for what God has done. We won't go back to Esther. As a matter of fact, I do want to be conscious of the source. There's so much great narrative here. But when a, when a celebration is established, you see the words, be glad, rejoice. Of all the people engaged in Christmas, Christians ought to be the most glad, the most rejoicing. Why? Because we have the most to be glad about, and we recognize it. We have the most to rejoice over. And is it okay to have a tree? Absolutely. I told my mom about the email that I got, and she said, well, you just need to preach to that man, and you need to tell him, hey, the evergreen is a symbol of God's provision of life that does not end. She said, you need to tell him about the lights that represent Jesus Christ, the light of the world. She said, talk to him about the presence, how that God is the greatest giver, and he gave us the greatest gift, his son. And so you can do Christmas trees and lights and garlands. You should do music. I'll tell you just a few things that I think is important, and then this is just my heart to yours based upon the pattern of the Old Testament. You ought to take time off from work. You ought to take time off from work. We are mandated to work. We are called to work. We are called to be engaged. Not too much time off from work. <laughs> I saw some people applauding over here. Uh, but you ought to take a... Take, listen, this is... Remember what it said in the Feast of Booths? Stop your ordinary labor. Pause and focus upon what God has done. And he tells them, decorate your booths. By the way, there's another component to this. It's feast. It's food. As a matter of fact, 
All of these are called feasts or festivals, holidays, holy days, celebration. Take a break from work. Focus on the goodness of God in the context of your network of people, whether that's your immediate family, whether it's a, a, a group of friends, it's people who share the same reason for celebrating. Both in Esther and in all of these, you see that there is an opportunity for you to be generous, to make sure that the poor have reason to celebrate as well, to make sure that no one is in need. And of course, you can be as generous as, as, as you can be by God's provision, practicing godly wisdom, but be generous to your family, be generous to one another. It is okay to wrap and to give gifts. That's important. So we said holidays, time off. We, we, we said that, that you can decorate. We said that you can, you can uh, eat. We said that you can give gifts. So are we appropriating pagan cultures Is it, and bringing it into our church? Can, can I address that really quick? Matter of fact, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll see what the Apostle Paul has to say about the relationship between Christians and what are perceived to be pagan activities. In verse 22, Paul begins speaking. He says, all things are lawful for me. Now, not, not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial. But everything's lawful. All things are lawful. But not all things build up. And then he gives us the Christian perspective that we all need to have. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, what's he beginning to talk about? Eat what is sold in the market. In Corinth and in Ephesus and in many other places, they would bring meat to idol worship, to offer. And there they would kill the animal. They would prepare the meat. They couldn't consume it all. So it would go to the market. And the meat that had been offered in the temples found its way to the market. And there were some who were saying, wait, we can't eat that meat because it made its way to us through an idolatry, uh, through, through a temple, an idol worshiping. Here's what he says, verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. And he goes back and he quotes Psalm 24. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Is there anything on this earth that God did not create? If one of the unbelievers, now it goes back into the relationship, so one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says, this has been offered and sacrificed, then don't eat it for the sake of conscience. And I don't mean your conscience, I mean theirs. Uh, for why? Now listen to this. This is verse 28. Why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced of that for which I give thanks? Here's the point that Paul's making. Evergreen trees, created by God. Garlands, lights, our relationship with things that we can say were founded in pagan activity. As a matter of, you can go back to the earliest parts of the Old Testament. And you see that there was decoration, that there was celebration, that there was rejoicing. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And I want you, I'm not mandating, by the way, that you have a Christmas tree. If, you're, if it is your conviction that it is a sin for you to have a Christmas tree, you should not have one. But I want to tell you that it is firmly my conviction 
that God's people are a celebrating people, and that includes decorating, that includes planning, that includes intentionality, that includes eating, amen? That includes gift giving, that includes all the things that we come together. But here's the, here's the problem that we have in this country today. We are so commercialized. We are so caught up in the trappings of Christmas that sometimes we forget the purpose and the meaning of Christmas. As a matter of fact, if you keep going in this 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 30, So then, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I want you to understand the context of that verse. We quote it a lot. But he's saying, eat meat offered to idols and do it to the glory of God. Isn't that an amazing statement? I don't know if that helps you. Again, it just kind of comes up every once in a while. I don't want to take too much time to address it. But I do want you to know that we've got great reason to celebrate. We have reason to celebrate because all God's promises find their yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. At Christmas, we celebrate a God who established and created the world, who made a promise beginning in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, that there was a plan that he had put into place before the foundation of the world that mankind was going to need a Savior and that He was going to send that Messiah, that promised one, that Savior. And there are 300 promises in the Old Testament that point to details and specificity, things that no one but God could know. And God knows it because He knows the end from the beginning. And in God's plan, we see the coming to earth, the humbling of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we celebrate the, the incarnation. His birth began with celebration. Do you remember the story of the shepherds in the field? There were shepherds in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto, the, unto them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel spoke to them and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings, good tidings, good news of great joy, much rejoicing. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the King. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. That's a celebration praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace, goodwill to men. Good, goodwill to those upon whom his favor rests. Peace, goodwill to men. God's provision through the Lord Jesus Christ. As you celebrate whatever Christmas traditions you have, I pray that you will go all out. I pray that you'll be really intentional in this, that you'll roll up your sleeve, that you'll put your calendar together, that you will get with whoever you need to get to to plan details, and that you will set aside time to celebrate and to rejoice. The part and the heart of that celebration needs to be celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's promise fulfilled, and why He came. You guys know why He came, right? We sang a phrase in a song just a little while ago that He came to bring many sons to glory, that He came to dwell on this earth for a short time. This is Hebrews chapter 2. I won't take time to look it up, but you need to. Hebrews chapter 2, he, took, he came to this earth, humbled himself, 
in order that he, because the children were of flesh and blood, he partook of those same things in order that he might bring many sons to glory, in order that he may take away the fear of death and defeat the one who brings the fear of death, Satan, that he may bring life and life everlasting. I'm going to close this, but I'm going to close this kind of with just a memory. If you don't mind, if you'll be just a little bit patient with me. Every year, our family tries to get together for years on Christmas Eve. And we all go to Mom and Dad's house on Christmas Eve. And yeah, the grandkids run, and there's a lot of noise. By the way, we do all this. We, we take time off. Uh, we come together, and, and we sing, and we celebrate, and we exchange gifts. And there's a lot of different things that we do. But one of my favorite memories is my dad sitting in his recliner. And by the way, if you know my dad, he bears a resemblance to the typical depiction of Santa Claus. Okay. Oh, and by the way, is Santa Claus okay? Can I just tell you about the first St. Nicholas? No, I won't tell you about the first St. Nicholas. But I'll tell you, he was a saint. He was a saint. And I did have a guy say, well, you know, Santa, Satan, same letters. Santa means saint. Satan ain't no saint. Okay, all right. And so celebrate St. Nicholas. Get some information about the original St. Nicholas back in the day, the Bishop of Myra, who was known for his commitment to doctrine, who was known for his generosity. Okay. Now, my memory is of Dad opening the Bible and reading the Christmas story and making sure everybody in the room knew what Christmas was all about. If that's not part of your tradition, it should be. Amen? Because apart from Christ, there is no hope. Christ is our only hope. The hope provided by his birth, his sinless life, and his substitutionary death on the cross. As Christians, we celebrate. Father, I want to thank you for the celebration, the pattern of being a celebration people, for the pattern of your activity and the things that you do and the work that you do in the world, in us and through us. Thank you for the times that we have set aside, both... Uh, by, by your command to, to celebrate Christ's resurrection and the other things that you call us to celebrate as a people, that we can take time to intentionally focus and celebrate the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your provision in Christ. In your name I pray.